Well, this morning, if you'll, we're not in 1 John, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a copy, I believe there are some uh, on the end of the rows. If you need a copy of God's Word, if you don't have your own copy, feel free to take one of those as a gift from us. Um, We would uh, be very happy for you to have that. So Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's go to him and ask him for guidance as we come to his word. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to see and to know you through these words. Fill me with your spirit. Strengthen and encourage all of us. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from your word today. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, as you heard in the prayer, um, particularly in regard to what happened on Monday, this week has been rough a bit. What happened at Covenant School hit me a lot harder this week than other things have in the past. Than similar tragedies, shootings like this, they're all horrific. But this one sat differently for me. Um, seeing three adults and three young children one who was the daughter of the senior pastor of the church that oversees that school, the church in our denomination, family I don't know, but I have many friends who know them well, um, or even know families who had children in that school. It just hurts. It's painful. And then to see the responses to what happened, the varying proposed solutions that came out way too quickly, we need to actually learn how to mourn and lament and pray. But all those, the, the, these solutions and, and the comments were so often different as night and day. 
The political posturing and the, the pushing of agendas has, has, honestly, it's really rubbed me the wrong way this week. There are so many divergent ideas of what is actually good. What is a good outcome? It's, it's not something I'm going to get into all the details of it, um, but it shows, I think it shows really clearly how little our world knows what it is that makes for peace. We just don't know. And I, I, I thoroughly mean that. And, and that's what has stirred me this week in this text before us. It's, it's a familiar text for many of us telling us about what the church often calls Jesus' triumphal entry. It's, it's here that Jesus took the initiative to enter Jerusalem for the final week of his life. It's the start of what's called Passion Week, the week that culminates in the horrific humiliation and suffering and death of Jesus on the cross and then the resurrection. It's a dreadful and beautiful week all at once. I know that sounds contradictory, But because of this week, we can actually know the things that make for peace. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1. He said, For in him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is where we find peace. And Luke focuses on that word peace very much. He actually uses the word 14 times in this gospel, more than any other New Testament writer. In fact, from the very beginning of this work, there's the idea of peace. It comes through as it points to Jesus. Luke 1, you you have uh, Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, he prophesied in regard to the role that John would play in salvation history as the, as the prophet of the Most High, that he would give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins, and that his word would, in verse 79, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the way of peace is Jesus. Was John's role. John was, in in many ways, a spotlight, shining the light on Jesus. He proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And then in Luke 2.14, we don't think about it so much this time of year, but at the end of the year we would. The heavenly hosts, the multitude of angels are announcing to the shepherds, and what do they proclaim? What do they proclaim? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This child Jesus, he's the one who will make for peace. He's the king. He's the prince of peace, as it was predicted and talked about in Isaiah 9. And this is what I want us to see in this text this morning, that our only hope for peace in this world Our only hope in our own lives for eternity, it's found in Jesus. It's found in this king who entered Jerusalem on a donkey on this first Palm Sunday. So this episode in Jesus' life follows on the heels of his sharing a parable about the nature of the kingdom of God and and being ready and, and all of that. And Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and many thought and really hoped that God's kingdom was to appear right then and there, was to come immediately And they didn't really understand the nature of God's kingdom. And the week that Jesus is about to enter into is what will help clarify so much of that. The events would show the nature of his kingdom. And so as we move into this text, we see Jesus, he gives his disciples some instructions. 
He's coming to an area around Bethphage and Bethany, and you can see it on the map just to the, the east. I, I think there's a map up there, hopefully. Um, if not, it's to the east of Jerusalem, um, near the Mount of Olives. It's a range that runs north and south for about two and a half miles. And that mount actually has some significance in the history of God's people. Particularly, it is viewed as the place where the day of the Lord, the return of the Messiah, will be seen, written of in Zechariah 14. And on this day, it's where Jesus gives instructions to two of his disciples to go into the village in front of them. We're not sure whether it's Bethany or Bethphage, um, where they're going to find an unridden colt tied up, and they're to untie it and bring it to him. And Jesus even tells them, hey, this is what you're going to have to say when the owners of that cult inevitably ask you what in the world you're doing, okay? And so he says, when you're, you're going to, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And then we're told how everything Jesus just told them happened exactly as he told them. It's, it's repeated almost verbatim. And, and there's some debate in the, the world a little bit about whether Jesus merely prearranged at some point, went and met with the owners of this cult and all that kind of stuff, or whether it was supernatural working. Honestly, whichever way you think, it I, doesn't matter. It, it's fine because no matter what, it demonstrates that Jesus is working out the entire scenario. He's in control of the events over his movements toward the cross. No one is compelling him. No one is manipulating him to do this. He is doing this. He knew where the cult would be. He knew that it would be tied up. He knew that it would have never been ridden, and he knew what to say to get it. Nothing is outside our, of his knowledge or control in this situation. So the disciples get it. They bring it to him. They throw their cloaks on it. They give him kind of a makeshift saddle. Their outer garments are there. And on it, they set Jesus. And he starts moving. People then start spreading their cloaks out in front of the colt so the colt can step on it. It's like this uh, non-red carpet, red carpet type treatment for dignitaries. Um, he's just this it's an amazing thing. He's coming into town, and, and they're celebrating. It's turning into an absolutely festive occasion. Beyond that, as he's pressing onward, heading down the Mount of Olives, everyone, all of his disciples, this multitude of followers, they're rejoicing, they're praising God loudly over what is going on, particularly, as Luke put it, for all the mighty works that they had seen. I think this is three years. This is the end of a three-year ministry. He's shown forth amazing power. The deaf hear, the, the lame walk, the blind see, lepers are cleansed. Lazarus was just raised from the dead. In Luke 4, Jesus actually stood in the synagogue and he grabbed the, he had grabbed the scroll of Isaiah and unrolled it and read this. It says this in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus got up and read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sat down and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we see it throughout. And actually in, in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, uh, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus, basically saying, who are you? Like, what's going on? And he says, go back and tell them this. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
You see, the gospel is preached in Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. As, as Mark said, when Jesus came on his first words, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Jesus, even in the, these years of his ministry, the effects of sin are being reversed piece by piece. Peace is coming through him, even if in small packages, in, in pockets throughout the region. But not only is he fulfilling that, he's writing a cult. Luke doesn't draw this out explicitly as some of the other um, gospel writers do, but there is clear link to Zechariah 9, where it's prophesied that Israel's king would arrive in such a manner, and that manner symbolized peace, a peaceful rule. Zechariah 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, riding a colt that has never been ridden, there's an aspect where this points to Jesus' sacrifice. You see, the colt is able to be used for sacrificial purposes because he's been unridden. He's not been worked. He's in, a, symbolizes kind of a pure state. The animal sacrifice in the Old Testament had to be without defect. And those serving in some capacity that were not previously worked, those pointed to that purity. They allowed them to be used for a sacred task. And so here, this cult is serving a sacred task in actually not the sacrifice itself, but he's carrying the sacrifice. He is bringing the sacrifice to Jerusalem. He's bringing the Lamb of God, the once for all perfect sacrifice. And the crowd proclaimed, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the first part of that quotation is from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we've already seen how the crowd, the multitude of disciples, saw this entry, at least to a degree, in light of Zechariah 9.9. But there is a lot of weight behind this, a lot of meaning behind this proclamation. And much of it, I don't think, and based on Scripture, that it was fully grasped by those who were saying it. One commentator wrote this. He said, Zechariah's prophecy saw Messiah as the Prince of Peace. The Galilean disciples, now streaming up to Jerusalem for the Passover, knew that Jesus had done many mighty works. They had for a long time watched and waited for him to proclaim himself as the Messiah of their hopes. Now they saw him as doing so. He was riding into the capital in a way that fulfilled the prophecy. He was showing himself to be the Messiah. But they did not stop to reflect that he was also proclaiming himself a man of peace and giving no countenance to their nationalistic fervor. They wanted a Messiah and now they saw one. But they had some misconceptions as to what that Messiah would be and do. They tried to fit Jesus into their conceptions, into their way of making peace. They were looking for a conquering king to boot Rome out of Jerusalem, to get Rome away from Israel. Now, maybe not all of them were, were thinking along those lines, but just this fervor, kind of the, the madness of crowds likely took over and everybody joined in with this praise because they thought that their hopes and probably a lot of varying hopes were being realized in this one riding into town on a colt. And we know they didn't fully understand the import of what was happening. That only came to the disciples after the resurrection. 
But you see, Luke here focused, I think, on the way of peace, on the Messiah coming in peace and coming to bring peace. The words of the multitude are actually almost identical to Luke 2.14 and the words of the multitude of heavenly hosts, proclaiming peace on earth to those among, among those who, to, with whom God is pleased. But no matter what they understood, the beauty is they were proclaiming truth. They were proclaiming it. But not everyone was excited to the same degree, were they? You had your curmudgeons in the crowd, um, the Pharisees. They called out Jesus, basically saying, Jesus, you need to shut everybody up. You need to stop this. This you gotta, you got to cut this out. They wanted Jesus to rebuke them all for what they were claiming. Luke doesn't specifically tell us why, but I think it's safe to deduce that they were worried about disturbing the fragile peace that they experienced with Rome. Rome would not tolerate a rival king coming into Jerusalem. These religious leaders had a pretty good place with the occupying nation, and they didn't want that disturbed. And the whole popularity of Jesus coming um, into Jerusalem at the time of Passover, okay, which, what was Passover? It was a celebration of liberation from Egypt, liberation from the oppressing nation. So there's a lot of symbolism behind all of this, and all of this could have caused Rome to feel, hey, 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 we're not good with this, we're threatened. If he won't shut them up, we're going to shut them all up kind of thing. And so they're worried about that because retaliation could come because they think it's, it's treason uh, as to what they're doing. But that didn't persuade Jesus. It didn't persuade him at all. Instead of rebuking his disciples, he rebuked them. He told them no. He's like, nothing's going to stop the praise of the true king, of of the prince of peace. If if they don't cry out, you know who's going to? The stones. The stones will cry out. And I love what this commentator wrote. He said, creation is aware of Jesus, but the leadership of the nation is not. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. Luke portrays the rejection as a tragic, stinging indictment of their lack of of judgment. How blind so many are to the one who brings peace. And that rebuke leads right into what we see next in the text. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is such a striking contrast to the jubilation of this red-carpeted, cloaked treatment of Jesus riding in on that colt. Here we find Jesus weeping. And folks, this isn't Jesus shedding a little tear like a guy watching some sappy movie with a a girl and he's trying to kind of hide it in the process. This is Jesus wailing. He is utterly weeping over this city. He is disturbed. These are tears of one who knows that so many in that city have turned their backs on the only one who can bring peace. They've rejected God's messenger. They've rejected God's message of salvation and and the, the sad thing is some of them may look like they're actually following him. In some ways, they purport to be, they look great, but yet they still reject God's salvation. 
They reject his way. Look at what Jesus says as he's weeping. So, so just he's wailing as he's saying this. He's weeping. Would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is lament. He's weeping because the city is so full of people who do not know peace. They don't know what makes for peace. And that's no different today. It's not. This world, our nation, our community is full of people who do not know what makes for peace. As I said earlier, that struck me with sadness this week. Sadness, frustration, just troubled. So often it seems that the world equates peace with conformity and unquestioned acceptance. And, you know, a whole new redefinition of tolerance, and it includes this hearty endorsement of whatever someone wants to do, unless, of course, it's biblical. It's rebellion in the form of autonomy. And rather than producing peace... It's chains. It's shackles. It's oppression. As Jeremiah talked about, the world is proclaiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, there's a complete and utter blindness to the truth and a real peace. And that comes from a consistent failure to respond to the Savior. And the consequence is that the darkness remains. And so in complete contrast to what is true peace, destruction comes. It's part of what Jesus is is weeping over because he knows the destruction that will come. And it came physically in AD 70. Jerusalem was wiped out. The whole lament echoes those of Old Testament prophets. And it's not only the world that is this way, but too often those who call themselves God's people who are also out there and they're undiscerning and consistently misunderstanding the way of peace. Because then they're conforming to the way of the world. And rather than repenting and returning to the Lord, they refuse. They don't actually recognize the time of the visitation of the Lord. And what, I, I, what is so striking in this is Jesus' heart. We're called to conformity with Christ. And so seeing Jesus' heart is striking. He, it's, it's a heart for those who are refusing what is actually good. What makes for peace. If you look back at Luke 13, verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
You see, Jesus knows full well there will be judgment. He's actually moving towards taking the judgment of God upon himself. Taking the wrath of God against the sin of his people. Excuse me. Of all those who turn and repent and believe. He's taking it upon himself. He, he knows the wrath that awaits the unrepentant and it grieves him. It grieves him. See, the cost of denying Jesus and pursuing sin is great. It is a fearful thing to be responsible for your own sin and for your own rejection before God. Your own rejection of Jesus. It is fearful to do that. When God makes the way of peace, and he has in Jesus, and he sets it forth, and it's rejected, only judgment remains. Folks, I hope you can see why this matters so greatly. Like I said, I'm not going to get into the way it happens, but the world is so often putting forth false ideas of peace. And sometimes even wolves in sheep clothing are doing the same thing. And it's deceptive and it's leading people on the road to judgment. The way of peace is Jesus himself. It's turning in repentance and faith in, in the one who entered Jerusalem in humility on a cult in order to give his life as a ransom for our peace, for our salvation. And those truths need to stir us. Stir within our hearts. Jesus wept over the city's rejection. J.C. Ryle, the great English bishop, wrote this. He said, We know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But a man of this spirit is very unlike David who said, rivers of water run down mine eyes because men keep not your law. He's very unlike Paul who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren. Above all, he is very unlike Christ. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. There are so many who reject the peace and and so many of us, in little ways, throughout different days, we reject the way of peace too. It's not just everyone out there. <laughs> when we turn to our own solutions and our own lives, we're rejecting the peace too. But there is so much false hope of peace where eyes are blind. And so... My encouragement, my exhortation this morning is this. Let's not be indifferent. Let's pray and proclaim true peace and freedom. Let's look to true peace and freedom in our own lives. And let's pray for and proclaim it to everyone around us. The only thing that makes for peace is Christ. It's his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the peace he gives is not as the world gives. Listen, the peace that the world gives, it might feel good for a, a short time. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And even as he says that, in saying let not your hearts be troubled, he's, 
he's implying there is plenty out there to trouble your hearts. But I've given you my peace. I heard from a friend who was at the funeral yesterday of the the pastor's daughter. And he said it was a great celebration of the peace and hope in Christ. The dad gave the eulogy. I don't know how. The only way I know he could do that is because he knows the way that makes for peace. And he wanted to proclaim it in the midst of just pain and agony. Of a time when his heart certainly is troubled, but he's saying, it's the peace of Christ in me. So, folks, let's come to Jesus. Let's come to the way of peace. And then let us rest in that peace in the midst of a world that can be very troubling. And then third, can we labor in our lives to proclaim that way of peace to all who know it, to a world that's frankly messed up because our only hope for peace is found in the one who came into Jerusalem on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, that first Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts more. Lord, let us be in some ways disturbed by the lack of peace in this world. And may we turn consistently and constantly to the goodness of Jesus and rest here in his wondrous peace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.